Welcome to the podcast History MKE, where we bring you the best stories from Milwaukee's history. If you're a native of Milwaukee, you're probably aware that Milwaukee's three rivers exit into Lake Michigan under the yellow arches of the Hone Bridge. However, you might not be aware that this mouth originally was about a mile south. So today's talk is going to be about Jones Island, which is located along Milwaukee's harbor where the Milwaukee River empties into Lake Michigan. And you're talking just the south end of Hone Bridge. That's where we're at. Uh, yeah, so Jones Island is located right along Lake Michigan uh, inside the outer harbor. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, basically right underneath the Hone Bridge. So right off the bat, Tim, I've got something to confess. Jones Island has always been a bit of a mystery and quite frankly, a source of irritation for me. Going all the way back to when I got my introduction to basic geography at Highland View Elementary School, it always puzzled me as to why Milwaukeeans continually called what was clearly a peninsula an island. If you don't believe me, just look at a map. It's a peninsula, not an island. To be more specific, today's talk is going to be about the early history of Jones Island, from the prehistoric Ice Age to the time of Native Americans and early white settlers, to who Jones Island is named for, to just exactly how this peninsula ended up being called an island. You could say that the story of Jones Island began with the receding of the glaciers in the last ice age, about 12,000 years ago, give or take a few years. When the last glaciers melted away, they left a ridge along Milwaukee's shoreline that separated Lake Michigan to the east from the Milwaukee River to the west. In technical geographic terms, I believe the ridge itself is called an esker, and it created a long, thin peninsula stretching over a mile from north to south. It ended at the original mouth of the Milwaukee River, which back then was much closer to where the Kinnikinnick River joins the Milwaukee Harbor, and where today the Hone Bridge ends at Bayview. Over the centuries, this ridge separated the river from the lake and served to contain the southernmost basin of the Milwaukee River, which included the main channel of the river, a wide area of swampy wetland, and a small marsh island that was located where a sizable chunk of Jones Island is today. Severe storms were constantly reshaping the geography of the ridge, the wetland, and the mouth of the river itself. By the early to mid-19th century, that marshy island had in fact become a solid part of the peninsula. The river and marshland were home to all kinds of animals like muskrats, beaver, ducks, and geese, as well as an abundance of wild rice. The mainland to the west was home to deer, bear, elk, raccoon, and fox, and of course, both the river and the lake were teeming with fish. Such a location with so many natural resources was an ideal location for a Native American village. Prior to white settlement, prior to white European settlement, there was at least one Native American village on the peninsula that was home to members of a number of different tribes, including the Potawatomi, Sauk, Ottawa, Chippewa, and the Menominee. The population of the village or villages was somewhere in the hundreds, but probably no more than a thousand. Keep in mind, these settlements on the peninsula were not year-round. It was inhabited only during the spring and summer months. As fall approached, the various families and tribes dispersed to their winter hunting grounds, which could be as far away as several hundred miles. And they only returned in the early spring with the start of the growing season in April or May. 
When Solomon Juno arrived in Milwaukee in 1818, he was working for Jacques Vieux, who was operating a number of fur trading posts in the region as an authorized agent of the American Fur Company. Juno is said to have witnessed Native American pony races along a hard strip of beach located on this ridge. He is said to have remarked that the horsemanship and physical skill demonstrated by the natives was better than anything he had ever seen before. By the 1830s and 1840s, Milwaukee was becoming a destination for thousands of settlers coming to the area, first from the East Coast and later from Europe. Early settlers referred to the peninsula as the Ridge, the Beach, or as Long Point. But that was about to change. In 1848, a fellow named James Monroe Jones came to Milwaukee as the captain of a two-masted sailing ship named the Lowell. Jones was born in 1824 on a farm in Ohio. As a young man, he followed his older brother to Cleveland, where he learned the ship carpentry business. By 1852, he had set up his first shipbuilding yard on the west side of the Milwaukee River. Two years later, he moved his yard onto the peninsula. And he is the one who started calling it Jones Island. And within a few years, even the Milwaukee City Directory was referring to the peninsula as Jones Island. And so the name stuck. I guess I can blame James Jones for my irritation with the name. Jones was the first large-scale shipbuilder in Milwaukee. In only five years from 1852 to 1857, he designed and built 24 ships right here in Milwaukee. Some of his designs were said to be some of the most advanced, fastest, and innovative ships on the Great Lakes. In addition, he trained several of the shipbuilders who followed in his footsteps for decades to come. From all indications, in those first five years as a Milwaukee shipbuilder, Jones found himself in a really good spot with a very successful business. However, in a string of bad luck that lasted about two years, that would all change. Were all these ships sail-driven, sort of like the Dennis Sullivan is? So yeah, from what I've read, most of the ships uh, that Jones built were, yeah, they were of the uh, three-masted schooner type. Um, but he did also, uh, he did start building uh, steamships that were propeller-driven as well. So back to Mr. Jones. Uh, first, in 1856, Jones was in the process of building a ship named the Allegheny. She was the first pro pro propeller-driven ship to be built in Milwaukee, like you just asked him. In addition, she was also the largest ship built in Milwaukee up to that point. On June 26, 1856, the Allegheny was launched from Jones Island into the water of the Milwaukee River. Unfortunately, due to foul weather, the ship soon ran aground. Her bow was driven deep into the sandy Jones Island soil, and the rest of the ship sank below the water. A steam dredge was quickly sent to dig the bow of the ship out of the sand and raise the hull out of the water. However, as soon as the first scoop of sand was raised, onlookers were horrified to see the shovel filled with skeletal remains, all kinds of ghastly white human bones, leg bones, arm bones, rib cages, and skulls. It turns out that the Allegheny had run aground at the exact spot that an earlier tragedy had occurred just a few years earlier. In 1850, a passenger ship, ironically also named the Allegheny, was carrying 260 Norwegian and Swedish immigrants from Buffalo, New York to Milwaukee. Somewhere during the weeks-long journey through the Great Lakes, an epidemic of typhoid fever broke out and began to run rampant through the ship. Typhoid fever is a food and waterborne bacterial disease that wreaked havoc throughout the 19th century, a time before the invention of antibiotics. 
Before the ship had even arrived in Milwaukee, 25 passengers had already died. Within hours of arriving in Milwaukee, another eight were dead with 40 more deathly ill. Local officials were quick to quarantine the vessel. The remaining passengers were taken off the ship and isolated in an abandoned building on Jones Island that, is now being, that was now being called a pest house. After three weeks of quarantine in the pest house, only 60 of the 260 on board managed to survive the epidemic. The remaining 200 were hastily buried in a mass grave on Jones Island that, in 1856, was now being rediscovered in the process of trying to free and right the Allegheny. I'm not understanding. This grave was underwater or just so close to the shore that they, they didn't know it was there? I don't understand how this could have So happened. as I understand it, yeah, it, so as after, the, after the tragedy of the 1850 Allegheny, those 200 were buried in a shallow grave right on Jones Island, probably very close to the shoreline. So when the new Allegheny plowed into that piece of land, that was exactly where those poor souls were buried. And that's where the crews came in and started trying to dig it free, and suddenly all of these suddenly, bones were there coming they up were. instead. And now a new outbreak of typhoid fever. Uh, that I Nothing was mentioned like that in my reading, but I don't know. It could be You possible. did say it was waterborne. Yeah, true. So it took almost a year before crews were able to free the ship, repair her, and get her seaworthy. Unfortunately, shortly after the re relaunch, the Allegheny suffered a collision with another vessel. She keeled over and sank again. Although she was once again raised and repaired, the Allegheny proved to be a major financial loss for James Jones. And you told me you, you looked for information on how this second crash happened and there was there's no information, right? No, and it just said that it just suffered a collision and, and sunk again. Were boat wrecks this common back then? It seems like we've got a strange number of them that we've, well, this is the second we're already talking about on this podcast. Yeah, so there are certainly a lot more shipwrecks that happened in the 18th, 19th century than occurred today. In fact, there are hundreds of ships that went down in, I think, you know, Lake Michigan alone. So it was, it was definitely not an uncommon thing. And in, you know, everything from passenger ferries to small fishing vessels suffered um, and went down on the lakes. So to make matters worse for Jones, the financial panic of 1857 puts, put Jones and his shipyard on the brink of bankruptcy. Credit seized up and shipbuilding had to be stopped. The third and final straw for Jones came with the massive storm of 1858. This was a storm of almost unprecedented fury. It completely uprooted and washed away small buildings and fishing shanties that were on the mainland directly across from Jones Island. More sturdy structures, both on the mainland and the island, had waves crash completely over their roofs and broke all their windows. Most of the piers on the island were shattered and floated away. Jones Island itself was underwater for over two days, and when the water receded, it was revealed that a large chunk of the island had simply washed away. As for James Jones, his shipyard was destroyed beyond repair, and his shipbuilding days in Milwaukee were over. The 1858 storm did damage to nearly everything on or near the island. However, one piece of recent engineering had held fast. From the earliest days as a trading post and a destination for settlement, the mouth of the Milwaukee River had always been a problem. As I mentioned earlier, the original mouth of the river was over a mile south of where it is today. 
Both the last meandering mile of the river and its mouth were extremely shallow and prone to being clogged with sandbars. Why then was it that Milwaukee was founded here and not down where it was back then? And where exactly was it? Well, you, you, still, you still had the protected bay of Milwaukee. You still had the three rivers that stretched out into, you know, in, into, the, into the mainland. It's just that the mouth of the river was a bit of a problem. They had to ferry smaller boats um, through the mouth of the river to get to what we now know of as downtown. Is there any landmark near where the original mouth was? So the closest landmark I can think of where the original mouth of the river was is probably um, the terminal for the Lake Express Ferry. That's probably the closest location I can think of that you'd recognize as where the, the river mouth was. Most Great Lakes schooners and steamers were too deep of draft to navigate the shallow river and the sandbars at the mouth. Ships were forced to either anchor in the bay or compete for limited space at the lake piers that stretched from the mainland out into Lake Michigan. A solution to the problem was begun in 1834, when local officials petitioned the federal government for harbor improvement funds. The basic question was how and where to improve the entrance to the harbor. Was it best to widen and deepen the existing entrance near Bayview, which at that time was actually called Chase's Point? Or would it be better to dig a whole new channel through a narrow portion of the peninsula that was much farther to the north, near what is today the Summerfest grounds? This proposal was known as the Straight Cut. Basically, those who lived near the existing harbor entrance wanted to keep it right where it was. Those who lived in what was becoming Milwaukee's commercial downtown wanted the entrance moved to the north where it would be closer to them. Political dickering and infighting went on for nine years until a somewhat controversial decision was made in 1843, which was to go with the existing harbor entrance to the south. It was at this point that our old friend Byron Kilborn, who had been a strong proponent of the straight cut, decided to take matters into his own hands. In fact, he was so, let's say, disappointed that he decided that he would dig his own straight cut. He hired a group of men and ordered them to dig a channel across the narrowest point of the peninsula, close to downtown, in the dark of night. And so, they did as they were instructed. At first, it seemed as if Kilborn might have actually pulled it off. Water gushed through the new channel for several days. In his excitement to prove his success, Kilborn offered two lots of land in Kilborn Town to the captain of the ship Patronage, if he could navigate his boat all the way through the brand new artery out into the lake. Unfortunately for Byron, midway through the channel, the ship ran aground on a sandbar and never made it to the lake. To add insult to injury, the very next storm completely plugged his channel with sand and closed Kilbourne's straight cut forever. It wasn't until 1852 that federal and local funds were secured to once and for all move the river mouth to the northern part of the peninsula despite several years of work and federal dollars spent trying to improve the original southern entrance. And why did the south entrance fail when the north one was going to be successful? I, you know, I, I think that given the technology of the time and the, the size of the problem, you know, that river mouth, it changed constantly with the storms. The channel moved constantly. It was just a never-ending battle with silt and sand. And so they never were able to fix the problem. And why wouldn't the silt and sand be an issue where the new mouth is today? Uh, probably because it was a much rockier portion of that peninsula in that esker. 
So by 1857, the straight cut was completed by the Army Corps of Engineers. And now most Great Lakes ships could now safely navigate up the Milwaukee River. An inner harbor was developed that the Milwaukee Sentinel described as having room and water enough for all the vessels in our lake. In addition, ships could now access all the industrial factories, mills, and elevators that were springing up along the Milwaukee River from the inner harbor all the way to the North Avenue Dam. Ironically, it was for that brief period in time, in 1857, that Jones Island actually became, well, an island. For the first time, it was completely surrounded by water. Lake Michigan to the east, the original mouth of the river to the south, the inner harbor to the west, and now the new mouth of the Milwaukee River to the north. But it wouldn't last long. The 1858 storm of biblical proportions that flooded the island and effectively ruined James Jones also managed to completely fill in the original river of the mouth to the south. But the newly completed straight cut to the north, with its new government quarters, lighthouse, and two harbor piers extending into the lake, they held fast. And so Jones Island went back to being a peninsula, except in reverse. Instead of running from north to south, the peninsula now stretched from south to north, just as it still does to this day. And that's our story for today. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, please hit subscribe. We'll be back in two weeks with a second edition of the Jones Island story, where we'll talk about the Kashubs, the people who lived there. I hope you'll join us then. The people who lived there.